This morning we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. I wrestled with the elders and other brothers and sisters uh, about whether or not I was going to continue on with our series as planned or in light of events to, to change the message. And upon yeah, much, much prayer and consideration and counsel, um, yeah, we're going to trust God and His providence um, in regards to what He has planned for us this morning. As we know that when tragedies and um, yeah, suffering happen in certain ways in, in the world, it doesn't mean that all sorts of other things stop. Uh, so I'm trusting this morning that we will all still need help uh, with thinking well about marriage and sexuality and everything that comes with that. So we're going to trust God and His grace as we consider this, this section from Hebrews chapter 13 together this morning. We're going to pray once more and ask for God to help us, and then... We will go to the Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we ask that you would, in your mercy, help your people to think well about marriage. You would help us to think well about the gift of sexuality. and You would help us to think humbly and soberly about the day of judgment. And that you would help us to think hopefully and with great resolve about the forgiveness and the grace that is available in the gospel. Father, you know the situation and circumstance of every heart in here this morning. For those who are married, you know the troubles, you know scars, you know pain, you know wounds, some of that are wide open right now, others that uh, you have healed in your mercy. Lord, for those who are unmarried and who desire to be, you know uh, their waiting and their questions and their desires, so we pray that you would give mercy to them. For those who are unmarried and have no desire or intention to marry, pray that you would be near to them and give them wisdom as well, that we as a church would think well about the institution that you have ordained called marriage and how we might be a people who give it the honor that you call us to. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when you think about marriage, what do you think about? There's all kinds of, of things, I'm sure. I, I, would, I would suspect if I literally had everybody write that down and turn in the answers, there'd probably be stuff all over the board. Some would maybe say honeydews, um, some would say clean sheets for the first time in my entire life. Um, others might say great joys. Others might say great sorrows. Some of us might say resolve to never do that because I grew up in a home where I saw what marriage is. Maybe frustration with hypocrisy, being around Maybe Christian marriages that maybe didn't look too much different than the world. Certainly our, our country and our nation has various opinions about what marriage is and how it ought to be thought about. But this morning as we come, we're going to see that God is, God is not just the God of the universe who cares about just big things, but He, he cares about everything. He cares about what happens in courtrooms, and He cares about what happens in bedrooms. We're going to see that very clearly this morning as we come in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, to verse 4. 
So if you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where we are going to be considering God's instruction to this suffering church about marriage, which might seem like a strange thing if you've been with us for this entire series in the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews is all about this congregation that is uh, predominantly have a Jewish background who's come together and who have professed that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Savior, He is the Lord, and that that is costing them great trial and tribulation and suffering and persecution. Because of their devotion to Jesus, people, friends, family, neighbors are forsaking them. And everything is calling them to turn away from Jesus, stop following him, and to come back to Judaism. Back to the law, back to the prophets. And what the author is doing in this book is lifting up and saying, no, Jesus is better. He's greater than than the law. He's greater than the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And he is worth trusting no matter what it costs all the way home. And with that in, in mind, maybe the injunction about marriage here doesn't seem so strange after all. Because marriage is a big part of the life of a church. And how marriages are going very much affects the spiritual health of those who are in the marriages and those who are watching the marriages. And when marriage is going really hard or there's sin that is destroying a marriage, it makes persevering in faith in Christ very difficult. So maybe this this word about marriage is not so, so strange after all in the book of Hebrews. If you will, I'm going to read verse 4, and then we're going to think about the big idea this morning. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed Be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We've seen this verse sits in the context of worship. In 1228, he says, Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And over the past number of weeks, we have seen what that worship looks like. Verse 1 of chapter 13, it looks like loving one another with brotherly affection, even as what we talked about earlier in light of our circumstances in our culture right now. Secondly, about hospitality, showing love to strangers. Then, the last time that we were in Hebrews, we thought about showing compassion and tenderness toward the persecuted church and remembering them. And now, he tells us that we worship God by upholding the preciousness of marriage and protecting sexual purity in marriage. And that's our big idea that we're going to be considering together this morning. That one of the ways we worship God as Christians is by upholding the preciousness of marriage and protecting sexual purity in marriage. Once again, we worship God by upholding the preciousness of marriage and protecting sexual purity in marriage. And that's really going to form our our two big ideas that we're going to be working out here. The first is uphold the preciousness of marriage, and secondly, protect sexual purity in marriage. Uphold 
the preciousness of marriage. Look again at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor, or your translation may say high honor, among all. He's teaching us here how we are to view marriage. There's a particular attitude about marriage that affects how we think about it and, and talk about it. There's a posture of our hearts toward this institution of marriage that God commands us to have. And the word here is, is honor. Honor. This word honor is used uh, throughout the New Testament in various ways. It's used um, of, of distinguished people or teachers. It's used of the precious fruit of the ground. So if, if you're a farmer, the fruit that comes up is precious because that's what's going to keep your family alive. It's used very often and most often of a rare or costly jewel that is precious, that you're going to guard and protect. It's also used of the precious promises of God. And then finally, it's used in Hebrews of the precious blood of Jesus. What that ought to tell us about this is that it, it, it's, it's something of value. It's precious. It's prized. And in the original language, it's the first word in the sentence, which, which is how Greek writers would, would, would put emphasis on something. This is why some translations say high honor. You see, God, right here in this text, as he does in other texts, he makes his official statement about marriage. So there's a lot of discussion in our culture about what is marriage, how should we think about it. There's a lot of opinions in here this morning. God says, I have an opinion about marriage. And his opinion is that marriage is honorable. It is valuable. It is precious. And the word there, it's, it's not actually a command telling us to honor. It's actually an indicative, which just says what is. It is honorable, says God. And the implication is that we ought to see it and treat it in the same way that God does. That because God says, this is mine, and I say it's honorable, this ought to be your posture toward it as well. Now, some of y'all might be thinking, man, I'm glad the married folks are getting a sermon. They need one. Well, you'll notice here that this is not just for married folk. Notice again, let marriage be held in high honor among who? Among all. God says all are to have this high view of marriage. So the married, those who are newly married, those who are kind of middle, (laughs) been at it for a while, and then those who have been married for a very long time are to have this view of, of marriage. Those who are unmarried are to have this view. Those who are unmarried and who desire to be married, those who are unmarried and don't desire, or those who are unmarried and are engaged and intending to be married to somebody. This is Again, to be the way that you are to view it. This is also a word to government officials. Those who are in the courts and who are lawmakers. God says, this is mine, and it should be treated in a way that shows honor to what I have given. Which kind of begins us into the question of what, why honorable? Why is this institution of marriage so honorable? Well, listen to this from Colossians 1.16. This is helpful for marriage and really everything else in life. By him, meaning Jesus, 
By him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him or by him and for him. All things, including marriage, is created by God and exists for God. We're going to think about this a minute because this is very important to help us understand how Christians ought to think about marriage itself. Marriage is from God. So anybody who's under the illusion that this is something that religious people just kind of made up or something that political institutions and governments just put together for uh, the stability of society and these kinds of things, that's not the case at all. Marriage is created by God. It comes from God. It's God's idea. Um, we heard the text earlier. Ben read, I'm just going to read it again from Genesis chapter 2. You can find it in your bulletin or it's real early in the Bible, chapter 2. Genesis 2 verse 18, the Lord, the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. So that's the first thing that God says is not good. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then, verse 24, so Moses moves here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from narrative to in, uh, giving us a Holy Spirit-inspired editorial comment. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What that means is that scene in the Garden of Eden with the first two people, Adam and Eve, that is the first marriage. That's where marriage begins. It comes from God. So at the first wedding, it was God who walked Eve down the aisle to meet Adam. He prepared it. He provided it. Marriage is God's doing. And it's, it's a beautiful institution that God has made. Adam and Eve were created by God to reflect His glory. And they were united by God to reflect His wonder and His wisdom to each other in unique ways. Delray Baptist Church, United States of America, world, hear this. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's gift to people. Marriage is God's institution. From the beginning of humanity, this is what God has ordained. It's a context in which love will be shown and life will be born. God made up marriage, and he says, it's good. And you should think it's good as well. So hold it honorably as a precious thing. But marriage is not only from God, but marriage is also for God. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
So wives, trust your husbands. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. As Christ loved the church. Verse 31 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. Listen to this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul, in Ephesians 5, quotes Genesis. He says this is where marriage comes from. God made it. Now listen to this. Verse 32 of Ephesians 5. This mystery of a man and a woman being made one flesh together in marriage... This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It. What's the it there? Marriage. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. You thought marriage was about you. It's not. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. The church. You see, one of the things the Bible teaches us about marriage, and one of the reasons it has such a great institution, is that from Adam and Eve and beyond, every marriage isn't primarily about the people to whom it's given. It's primarily about the gospel. It's primarily about, in God's wisdom, in His wise design, He has created this institution in which the beauty of the way that Jesus loves his bride is put on display. Marriage is from God and it exists for God. Marriage is a divinely designed institution created for his glory and the good of all people. Because in this institution, God gives stability for societies, he produces a often very painful opportunity for sanctification and growth. Because there's nothing like living with another sinner to put your sin on blast. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're married, you know exactly what I'm saying. God uses marriage very often to sanctify us and make us look more like Jesus. It's a healthy context for where children are to be raised. Marriage is a divinely designed institution created for God's glory and for the good of all people. So I want to ask you, do do you think of marriage in that way? Is that what came to mind whenever I said, what do you think of when you think of marriage? You see, God's primary purpose in marriage is to display his glory through the way husbands and wives love each other. And what this does is it it makes everything that happens in and around and to marriage meaningful. It either upholds this thing that God says is precious as a jewel, precious in the same kind of word as the, the precious blood of Christ. It either upholds it or it undermines it. And this has implications for all of us. That's why the command is given to all of us. So as a pastor... What I teach about marriage matters. How I decide who I will and who I will not marry matters. What I will allow or not allow during a ceremony matters. Because it's a way of showing honor to it. For those who are intending to marry, 
You, you can show honor by the way you prepare for marriage. If you're, if you're single, then you, you, you go through your singleness in such a way that you have marriage in mind, trusting that if it's good for you to have it, that the Lord would give it to you. If you date or court or whatever your word is, then you do it with, with a view toward, toward marriage. So we think it's actually unhealthy for you just kind of date to date. There ought to be purpose and intentionality. And if you want wisdom on how to do that, we're happy to help you think through that. For those of you who are, again, those who are unmarried, this is not God pouring salt in a wound. But he calls you here to think well of the institution of marriage, to support it with wise counsel with your friends who are struggling, to support it with your service, to pray for it. For those who are married, we show honor by the way you persevere in marriage. Do all things with the commitment of till death do we part before you. The divorce is not the option for the Christian. For husbands, husbands, you You give honor to the institution of marriage when we sacrificially love our wives, when we provide for them, when we protect them, when we serve them, when we surrender our rights for her good and her pleasure. When we do that, it puts Jesus on display for her, for any children that might be around, and for the watching world, including this church. Wives, you submit to the loving leadership of your husband. You show honor to him and respect to him even when he's not respectable. Do this with words and what, and attitudes and actions, with either things you say or don't say. Because what it does is it puts on display for him the kind of love that the church is to be having for Jesus. And it puts on display for any children who might be around and for any watching world, including this church, what it looks like for the church to love and trust Jesus. Husbands and wives play this, these roles in this portrait, these little portraits that God has put all throughout human history, putting on display what it means for God to love his bride. It matters. So together, the way that you speak to each other, the way you about each other, the way that you confess sins to each other, the way you extend forgiveness to one another, the way you guard and prioritize your relationship in regards to time, the way you pursue sexual intimacy together, it gives honor to the institution of marriage. Children, this is for you as well. To hold marriage in high honor. So children, please, listen, pray for your parents. If you live with us, you know we need help. Please, pray for us. I mean, everybody in here looks like they're, they're, they're you know, doing well. Everybody's marriage is snazzy, you know, doing great. Everybody who lives with us knows that's not the case. It's hard. So children, please, pray for your parents. And if you see mom and dad loving each other well, thank them. Encourage them. It would rock your parents' world if you went up to them and say, Dad, you sure 
you sure made Jesus look amazing when you love mom like that. <laughs> like, what happened to you? Where's my kid? <laughs> yeah. Mom, you sure put up with dad today, and you know what? I think that really honors God. Thanks. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Whoever's editing these can fix stuff along the way. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Encourage your parents. Parents, I would encourage you to allow children to do what I'm about to ask you. Now, now children, you need to do this respectfully. But if you see something that seems off between mom and dad, not in the heat of the moment, but later on, ask them. Say, mom and dad, I want to talk to you about something. Tell me what just happened, what I just saw. It's okay to ask those questions. And parents, it needs to be okay for your children to ask those questions. For those of you who have seen bad marriages, I want to say I'm sorry on behalf of of God. I want to say we're sorry because that's not the way that God intends it to do. Some of you have seen bad marriages in this church. and Some of you have seen people repent from bad marriages in this church and have begun walking with God and husbands have begun to love with humility and wives with humility. That can happen. So children, pray for your parents in that end. Trust God's good design. You see, God says that marriage is it's valuable. And it's to be honored because of what it portrays. It's a picture of the gospel. And because of the importance of marriage, you've got to know that Satan hates it. Satan hates marriage. He hates what it represents. He hates the potential for God-glorifying and people-edifying situations. He hates that. And he does everything he can, sometimes violently and very often subtly and patiently, to dishonor and to destroy it. So every good injunction I just gave you a moment ago, Satan wants you to not do those. But along with that, divorce and illicit remarriage, meaning someone who has been divorced for an unbiblical reason and then remarries, which Jesus says is not legal and commits adultery. Too many Christians treat perseverance in marriage as an option. You know, things just aren't working out. The world may have that view, but that is not to be how it is among us. And listen, I know a lot of your stories. Marriage is hard. It does not catch God by surprise. He knows. We are not making light of the difficulty of persevering through some very hard things to forgive and some very difficult situations to endure. But apart from very few and very clear reasons. Divorce is not an option for a Christian. Because there's something about persevering in love that really glorifies God and really edifies you and makes you more like Jesus. And Satan hates that. So we want to say publicly that the rampant divorce in churches does not honor God. Another way that Satan aims to destroy and dishonor marriages is what we might call the, the remaking of marriage. 
So, for instance, polygamy, which is legal in many parts of the world and not in our country unless it's on a TV show, um, yet certain parts, certain religions will teach it. Um, it's heading that way, obviously. The Bible is very clear that marriage is between one man and one woman. So, now, some will say, now, hold on, wait, polygamy is in the Bible. It's true. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. God does not condone it. God puts up with it sometimes, even from some of his choicest saints. But I just want you to watch the lives of it, of the people who are in it. It never turns out good. God allows people sometimes to make sinful decisions and then to live them out. So the Bible does not condone polygamy. Same type of thing with same-sex unions. So I just want to be clear for you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we don't talk about, you know, um, same-sex marriage all the time. But I I just want to help you understand why Christians are opposed to same-sex marriage. Christians are opposed to same-sex marriage because, because it's not actually marriage. Now, I understand I'm up front, and, I have, and that may be hard for you to, to hold peace. Just listen to me for a moment, please. I'm happy to talk with you afterwards about this. Marriage, we believe as Christians, is God's institution. We just walked through that. And we believe that no one, including us, and including the Supreme Court, has the right to change what God says it is. So we don't actually think there's any such thing as same-sex marriage. There may be same-sex unions, and there's a totally different discussion about rights for couples and those kinds of things in, in a society. That's a, I think it's a different discussion. But this is why Christians are opposed to the idea of same-sex marriage. I understand that there's some people who say that they are Christians, who say, such as Matthew Vines, who is a young, popular teacher who would say that as long as it's a monogamous relationship between um, a man and a man and a woman or a woman, um, that, that, that the Bible doesn't speak against that. I just want to be very clear, that's not true. It's a false teaching. I've talked to Matthew Vines about this. I've had lunch or dinner with him. My wife and I had dinner with him. We talked to him about this. I think he misuses original languages and pulls some hocus-pocus, so I think it's just, not, it's just not there. So we don't say that to be mean. We say that to be loving, because we think it's actually unloving for someone to tri- twist the Scriptures to provide you opportunity to do something that's actually not good for you, that God says is not good. So this is why some Christians will not bake a wedding cake for a a gay couple, but we'll happily have them over for barbecue afterwards. It's because we think there's a big difference. It's not because we hate gay people. It's because the institution of marriage is something that Christians honor, and we honor it in various ways, including saying that we don't think that same-sex marriage is actually marriage. But we're happy to have you over into our homes and to learn more about you and to hear your story and for you to hear ours, and for us to to do life together. We think that's Christian love, and we want to be good neighbors, and we care about you, even though that may be difficult to understand. If you want to talk about this more afterwards, happy to, to go out to lunch with you sometime. A third way that we might dishonor marriage is 
misusing the gift of sex. Misusing the gift of sex. Sex is a gift God has given to people to be enjoyed in a very specific way, which is within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for life. Which brings us to our second point. Protect purity in marriage. Protect purity in marriage. Look at our text again, Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So the marriage bed here is, is not just talking about a piece of furniture from Ikea. Rather, it's referring to a place where the blessing of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife are generally enjoyed. It's a place where husband and wife share their most intimate moments. It's where prayers are prayed, where love is made, where hopes are spoken, where fears are confessed, where children are conceived. God says it's a sacred place. It's to be undefiled, or another translation might say unstained. It's to be sexually pure. The word for pure here, it means it's the same word used in 1 Peter of an undefiled inheritance that Christians receive in heaven. It's used in James 1 of the kind of worship, pure worship that's pleasing to God. And it's used in Hebrews again of the purity of Jesus himself. The message, which is not a translation of the Bible, but it's a paraphrase of the Bible, I think grabs this beautifully here. It says, Guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between a wife and a husband. So sex is a sacred gift, which means it's a holy thing. Not a holy in the sense of like uppity and unbeautiful, but holy in the sense of set apart and precious and beautiful. It's, it's, it's a sacred gift that God has given for husbands and wives to enjoy within the context of marriage. Remember again, Colossians 1.16, all things are from God and for God. This is included in that. Which means that sexuality is not something that's to be neglected within marriage. And it's not something that's to be treated flippantly before or during or after marriage. So I want to be really clear here that purity and passion are not opposed to one another. Purity and passion are not opposed to one another. Rather, purity and passion are actually worshipful to God when they are united in the proper place, just within the context of marriage, this honorable institution that God has given for husbands and wives. So here's an implication. This is important. All sexual activity is either pure in God's eyes or impure. All of it is either pure in God's eyes or impure. And the way you can know whether it is pure in his eyes or if it is impure is if it is enjoyed in the way that he designed it to be enjoyed. Does that make sense? In a way that keeps the marriage bed pure and undefiled. Now, there's two ways that the marriage bed can be undefiled. Now, hold on. I cut something out of my notes, and I just want to make sure that I didn't leave it out, leave it out. I did, so I'm going to put it in here so I don't forget it. 
There's one other way that's not here in the text that I just I feel like I need to comment on. And that is, that is this, that there are ways that couples can sin against each other. Married couples can sin against each other that would defile the marriage bed. There, there are ways that you can be selfish. There are ways that you can encourage your spouse to do something that's uncomfortable. There are things and ideas that you can bring into the marriage bed that are not that are not what God designed. So I just want to be really clear here that just because a husband and a wife are married, that does not give a husband or a wife the right to do whatever they want with their spouse. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we are, that sexuality is its foremost service of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband, and that their bodies are not their own. They're to be servants of one another. So we just want to be really clear that we think that's important. If any of you have any questions or concerns about any of that in your own marriage or in something else that you think the pastors need to know about, we are here to help, help you process some of that. Back to our text. There are two ways here that the marriage bed can be defiled from this text. You'll notice it comes at the end. So let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexually immoral and the adulterous. These two words summarize all the ways that people can sin sexually. The first here is sexual immorality. Uh, The the Greek word is is pornos, where we get the word for pornography. Now, there's no need to list out everything that could fit into this category. It is a broad word. It says any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage, single, engaged, straight, gay, alone or with others, anything outside the bonds of marriage, It's called sexual immorality. Now that sounds crazy to our world. We've we've all either, well, I've thought this, these things, and we've had these conversations where we say, well, it's my body. I I could do with my body whatever I want to do. And this is where we'd say, well, actually, not exactly. God made your body, and he knows what's best for you, And that his laws and his commands are actually loving guardrails to keep you from driving off a ditch and destroying your life. So your body is a stewardship. And if you're a Christian, 1 Corinthians 6 says your body is purchased with the blood of Christ and that you are no longer your own. Another might say, well, 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 we we love each other. We love each other, so we're going to do what people who love each other do. We don't need marriage to define that. And we would say that true love will care for the other person primarily by helping them to obey God. So if someone says they love you but are calling you to do things that God says are evil and sinful, then that's not love. I just want you to know. The world may say, oh yeah, it's love. Love is love. This is where God would say, no, love is not love. I am love, 1 John chapter 4, and I define what love is. And you've got to know that's good for you. 
it is good for you because he's a good God. Lots of other objections that we could go through here, but we won't. I do want to say one word to, to those who are engaged or, or you plan to be engaged and you, you're just sure you're going to marry this person. I just want you to know you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what tomorrow holds. I, by God's grace, am married to my wife. The best thing that's ever happened to me aside from coming to know Jesus. I was engaged to another girl twice, same girl twice, tried really hard. I was 50 days away from marrying her. We had invitations. We put down deposits. We were sure. You don't know. You think you know. But you don't know. Part of humility in obeying God is trusting that you, you don't know tomorrow. And that that person is not yours until God says they are. And that happens through the covenant of marriage. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is very important for this conversation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Anybody want to know what God's will is for your life? Here you go. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, meaning be made more like Jesus. That you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. So it marks people who don't know God to just do what feels good. Not the people of God. Now listen to this. That no one transgress and wrong or defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. So this is not just me. This is God's word who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So again, I want to be really clear that this is not just some conservative Baptist on a soapbox talking about sex. Like, this is just what God's word says. This is what Christians believe. God says, and this is, please, hear this. God says that any sexual activity outside of marriage defiles the marriage bed. Because, here's why, because whomever you engage in that with is potentially somebody else's spouse. And you're defrauding that person. You're stealing something that isn't yours because God has not given it to you. And in the same way, you're potentially, you are potentially someone else's spouse. And by engaging with another, you're defrauding your future spouse. You are sinning against them, even if you haven't met them, because you're giving away something that God had for them. So I want you to know, again, that this is not just from some guy who's done life perfectly. My life before I knew Jesus was marked by all sorts of sin in this area. And it costs something. My honeymoon night, when Carrie and I got married some nine years ago, when we went to the hotel, we got to the room, she gave me, she gave me an envelope, a letter. And on the front written in 13-year-old girl kind of ways that you write stuff, said, to the one. And I opened that letter, and I read it. 
And it was a letter from my wife as a very young girl saying that she was going to wait for everything until she met the man that God had for her. I wept on my honeymoon night. Because I, I couldn't say the same thing to her. I, and I would have traded everything that I had ever given into to be able to look back and to say, I, I waited for you too. You see, sin doesn't tell you about the cost of sin. It holds out the pleasure, but holds back the price tag. Always. And there is grace. And my wife shared the gospel with me. And praise be to God, he is a merciful God. But I just want you to know that Satan is a liar. And that he lies about what sex is and what makes it good or right or fun or enjoyable. God knows because he made it. The other way that the marriage bed can be defiled is through adultery. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Adultery is when a marriage person, a married person, engages in any sexual activity with someone other than their spouse. I think this would be evident how the marriage bed is defiled. To you who are married, when you took your vows before God, And before witnesses, you swore, I do. And you pledged your body and your heart to your spouse until the day that you died, or they died. Now listen, marriage is difficult in seasons. Some of you, marriage is difficult, it seems, in every season. And Satan wants to tempt you to look elsewhere wants you to to call you to consider the ways that your spouse isn't sufficient. You to allow discontentment with them to fester. To see all the ways that they aren't satisfying you. They don't talk enough. They talk too much. They don't work out. Not exciting. Not fun. Not funny. Not as godly as someone else. I don't think Satan's not that sinister. And what happens over time is he, he wants to create bitterness and distance and apathy towards your spouse. And you've got to hear this. Satan will always provide a way to satisfy your flesh. If you give in to temptations of discontentment and daydreams of evil, Satan will cultivate that with all that he has. And he will find a way for you to sin against your spouse and against God. There's lots of ways that it can happen. You meet somebody at work, church, an old friend online. You see their friend request come in. Somebody at the gym, maybe. They smile and they ask, hey, how are you? And you feel like nobody's asked you that in a long time. At least not that way. And you start thinking about it. 
And then one day, you, when you're getting dressed, you start thinking, I wonder if they'd like this or that. And you kind of go in hoping that you'll see them. And you say hi, and the next thing you know, you are in quicksand. And it's hard to get out. And yes, there might be enjoyment for some time. That's why people sin in this way. But in the end, it will destroy you. And it will destroy others. Hear this. In 13 years of pastoral ministry, hear this. It always brings pain. Always brings pain. To you and to many others. Many more than you thought it ever would. And I want you to know that it is always exposed. Always. And I want to say this, that it's actually a judgment from God if it's not exposed. Because you think you got away with it. But God knows. And there's nothing that escapes his eye. It's actually merciful for it to be brought into the light so that you might actually confess and repent and receive forgiveness. You see, God says the marriage bed must be guarded. Hear this from Proverbs 5. Pro- Solomon speaking to his sons, but it can apply to men and women alike. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman or my daughter with a forbidden man? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's eyes are before a, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. That imagery is powerful. Because you see, in a desert, you treat springs of water with great care, because they are invaluable. You must protect them so that nothing pollutes it and it's not wasted. He likens that to sexual intimacy. It's a life-giving blessing in your marriage. This is, a, this is a gift you're to be selfish about. It's something that you ought to share with only one person. Let it be blessed, he says. Rejoice in your spouse. Let your intimacy fill you with delight. Be intoxicated with each other's love. Don't cheapen such an important gift. It's not for other people. And remember, God is watching. All of our ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of our steps. So hear this. So just because something is legal with the government, or okay with friends, or permissible with family, or celebrated in the culture, does not mean that it's okay with God. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God will judge There is a present judgment and a future judgment. The present judgment, and this is tricky to discern at times, but there are consequences that God allows us to experience in this life because of sin. 
Romans 1 says it this way. He speaks of people indulging in sexual sin. He says, they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. In themselves. Now, is there hope for those who have sinned? Yes, there is forgiveness in Christ. But do not be deceived. Though there is forgiveness for those who repent and trust in Christ, there are still serious and oftentimes devastating consequences for our sin. So don't fall into the lie, well, I'll just do this and then God will forgive me. Because sin has a callousing effect that deadens our heart to God. So one of the ways to fall away from faith in Christ is to give yourself over to sexual sin. Ponder that for a moment. This is why I think it's in the, one of the reasons in the book of Hebrews, a book about perseverance, is because harboring and giving in to sin and allowing your heart to be calloused, it hardens you against God. There's also a future judgment. Well, God will call all people to account as to whether they have loved him or loved sin in themselves. Hear this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If these sins mark your life in the sense that you are unrepentant and not fighting against them, but are consistently controlled by them, that is not the mark of a, a person who's been born again. I am not saying, hear this, I am not saying Christians don't struggle with sexual sin. They do. There are seasons of my life as a Christian. Some of my, some of my most grievous sins were committed after being a Christian. But what marks your life? Is it grief over your sin? Is it hatred for your sin? Is it aiming to war against your sin? That's what marks a Christian. He says, do not be deceived. Some of you have been involved in very, yeah, just horrendous things, and you know it. But there's something else you've got to know for sinners like you and sinners like me. Is that there is a God who loves to give mercy to sinners who will seek his face. Listen to the rest of that 1 Corinthians passage. And such were some of you. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were practicing homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers. Some of you may even be that right now. But hear this. Those who trusted in Christ, you were washed. You were sanctified, meaning set apart. You were justified, which means declared righteous, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The good news of the Gospel is that if you are breathing this morning, that no matter what has marked your life in days gone by, what can mark your life from this moment until the day that you see your Maker is grace. It is the... It is the it is the sin-washing grace of Jesus who came to earth and lived a life unlike any of the lives that any of us have ever lived, a perfect life of full obedience, and then died on the cross and received the judgment that we deserved. God will judge sexually immoral and adulterers. 
and he judged Jesus in the place of them. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So if you've turned from your sin, which means you've confessed it and said, God, you are right, I have sinned in this way, and you have repented, which means you've turned away from me. You said, Lord, no longer will I serve that, but by your grace I will serve you and trust in you and follow by faith. It means you've been born again. And it means that God forgives your sins. For those of you who are undecided, hear this word from the prophet Isaiah. The Lord says through him and to you, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus forgives sinners. Will you come to him and be forgiven? Now for those of you who have suffered such devastating losses because of your sin, hear this word. This is through the prophet Joel. He speaks to to the nation of Israel. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I send among you. What he's talking about is that God had brought judgment upon this nation because of their sin, and he had sent a locust plague which devoured everything. But God says, if you will repent and turn to me, I will restore to you the years that you lost. I'll make it better. I'll make it better than it ever could have been had this not happened. The Lord says, I will do that. Because he's that kind of God. So no matter where you've been or what you've done, there is grace. Come unto Jesus and receive it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is true. Father, we thank you for your spirit who uses your word to awaken us. Father, we ask that right now for those in this room who are convicted by your word, who know that they have harbored lies, or who are living a lie even right now, or who uh, have recently, maybe even this morning or last night, given in to these types of sins, or haunted by things in days gone by, that you might visit them with your mercy even now. And that, God, you might mark this congregation and make us a humble people, a holy people, and a people who are happy in Jesus. God, would you do that work for your glory and our good? We pray it in the name of Jesus. And everyone said.